Hi, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. In season one, Andrew Winston joined the show to talk about how businesses are creating opportunity through the green economy. In this episode, Andrew and I discuss the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, new innovations in the fight against climate change, how having a sustainability plan for companies is a key to attracting talent, and his new book, Net Positive. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by the Think to Perform Research Institute, an organization committed to advancing moral, purposeful, and emotionally intelligent leadership. Andrew, welcome back to 12 Geniuses. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's been two and a half years since we first talked. What have we learned about climate change during that time? Well, we've learned a lot about many things in that time, right? I mean, a lot has happened in the world. You know, climate change in particular, the science has gotten a lot clearer. The reports out of the scientific community more recently have been very clear um, using words like unequivocal, which for science is unusual, right? To, to say something like that, you know, they always use confidence intervals and likely, and, you know, they're, they're saying it's unequivocal. And, and I think we've seen actual impacts in the world that we've never seen before, actual record breaking of heat, of storms, of fires, floods, and it's affecting business in a, in a, in a real way. So in the last few years, since we spoke, I think the buy-in, if that's the right word, for business in terms of their activity, trying to do something about climate or, or do something about their carbon footprint, the activity's just grown exponentially. And you can see it in kind of measurable changes in the kind of goals they've set, the amount of renewable energy they've bought. I mean, it is measurably different than a few years ago. What new innovations have emerged to address climate change in the last couple of years? I'm thinking about storage or renewable energy. What are some of the remarkable changes that you've seen in those two and a half years since we first talked? Well, what's remarkable really is, I don't know if it's really new technologies. There's a lot of things that are old. You know, there's things we can do for reducing energy and carbon that are really old, like insulating buildings, right? But the the newest technologies, the, you know, powering the grid and powering our lives with renewable electrons, it's just that the cost of them has continued to drop so dramatically. Over the last 10, 11 years, it's, you know, 80, 90% cost reduction in wind and solar. And that's continued in the last few as well. It just continues to accelerate. And we're seeing that now in the, in the last few years, in particular, in things like batteries, the cost of batteries, things that, you know, technologies that people said, oh, they'll never really get cheap enough. We're starting to see that bearing out, that we're, that we're going to see these things coming down fast enough to get to an incredible scale. And we're seeing the commitments from companies based on those technologies. The Most of the world's um, largest automakers have committed to move away from, you know, combustion engines over the next 10, 15 years. And that's because they're seeing the same numbers we are. They're seeing the costs come down and the demand rise. Um, and so things that we weren't sure were feasible, like commercial fleets that are electric, you know, big trucks, not just tiny cars, they're becoming feasible. And the cost of renewable energy globally in the last few years has basically dropped below the cost of building fossil fuel energy. That's what's flipped. And it's finally happened and it's here. And almost all of the energy we put on the grid globally now is renewables. One of the things that we talked about in our first conversation was your book, The Big Pivot, and you've talked about five different trends that you're looking at. One was resources, and we've seen acute pressure on resources, particularly during the pandemic. And I'm curious if you believe we have the resources to fundamentally create this green economy. 
there is just a base reality that the planet has so much stuff, right? We keep finding deposits of things, but they generally are more expensive to get to. They take more energy, they take more resources. And now getting to the clean economy, there are metals and resources we need for that as well. Lithium, you know, for batteries, cobalt, like all these metals. Um, there is not an infinite amount and we're getting better at finding them in some ways, but it all drives us toward this conversation of building like a circular economy. And this is why you see so many companies, especially in kind of in value chains that are based in kind of heavy industry, talking about how do we reduce the draw on virgin materials and how do you keep reusing things over and over again? Um, it's hard to make a perfect circle and cycle out of materials, but we do pretty well with some things like aluminum, steel. There's things that the vast majority gets recycled. We need to build that kind of circularity into a lot of different other materials like plastics or move away from them to bio-based and find the right mix of resource use and, and reuse so that we're not draining the system because we got almost 8 billion people now. We're heading to 9 or 10 and generally they're getting wealthier and we want them to get wealthier and that just means more material consumption. And there just really isn't quite enough planet for that, for us to all live at the level that you know the rich Western world lives. A couple of years ago, the one and a half degree report came out and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just released a report in August. The summary words to describe it were widespread, rapid and intensifying. And you alluded to it earlier, but what is some of the evidence that can help us understand this summary? Yeah, I mean, the, the words that the secretary general used, I think, was code red for humanity. The 1.5 degree report a few years ago was really, I think, one of the more important scientific reports in human history and because it, it laid out very clearly that the pathway we needed to go down to even hold the world to 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming was going to be aggressive, right? We needed to reduce carbon by half by 2030. Um, and this was a few years ago, right? We had 11 years at that point. Now we have eight, right? It's like the time keeps getting shorter. The new report, you know, the level of certainty from the scientific community is pretty profound. And I think what's clear is measurable changes in the intensity of heat, of storms, of floods, the scale of them. And there's better and better science on what they call attribution science on how do you know a given storm is more likely because of climate change. You can never say a given hurricane is because of climate change, right? It's an immensely complicated system. But the science has gotten better and better to say this heat wave where it went to 120 degrees in Canada and the Northwest was almost impossible before the level of heat loading in the atmosphere, right? Like that's what's gotten much better is to say this is because of us. It is because of the way we are using carbon and putting it in the atmosphere. And it's getting more and more predictable on a day to day level, but on a year to decade level, what's coming. So some of the indications obviously around the coastal areas, the hurricanes and in California or in Colorado where we've had incredible wildfires or even in Canada, there have been wildfires. But in a place like Minnesota or I think one of the, the states that you mentioned in our first conversation was Nebraska. I think they had had floods around that time. You know, for, for places like that, what are some indications that things have changed and may be quite dangerous? There's parts of the country and parts of the world that are getting drier and parts that are getting wetter. There's kind of a, a zero-sum system of water in the world, and we're, we're loading more into the atmosphere. It comes down in some places and, and not as much in others. And I'm seeing it in, where I live in Connecticut in the Northeast. We're seeing more intense storms. And I think everybody's experienced this. When storms happen, 
they seem to happen with much more intensity, right? Like massive amounts falling. We just broke by a lot, a record of rainfall in Central Park in New York and in Connecticut where I am by like an inch or more in an hour. Like it was a huge jump in the record of the amount that fell. So in every region, it's a little different. We're seeing what species grow where moving as temperature bands move. Some of the charts I've seen is, you know, over this century is to imagine certain areas becoming more like the way that other areas look like today. So parts of Illinois will look like West Texas in terms of the number of days over, say, 90 or 100 degrees. Like that's a way to get your head around that it's basically like everybody's moving south, right? A lot of systems aren't built for them. A lot of, a lot of species and the trees and the animals and, and us and our cities are not necessarily built for some of the temperature extremes and the ongoing heat. Um, and then some places are just frankly going to be underwater. And I think we have to deal with some very serious changes that are coming. You know, I grew up in South Florida and Miami doesn't have a good future. It just doesn't. And we're going to have to deal with that as a country and as humanity, places that are going to become unlivable. People have lived in these places for generations and we're going to need some kind of ordered retreat from some places. That's the adaptation part of this, that we are no longer at the point where we can avoid all damaging results. We have to deal with some of it. We've seen a huge shift in the workplace and why people are working in the companies that they're willing to work for. And I have seen personally sustainability being a metric that companies measure in a way that they never measured before. So my question is, how much has sustainability increased in importance as people are looking for jobs and making choices around this is where I want to be. I think this drive of younger generations to have more questions about who they work for and who they buy from, I see that as maybe the most powerful. That and, and kind of transparency are these two real driving forces and they go together. The younger generations are on devices. They expect knowledge about everything, about every product they buy, every service. But you see this and you hear it in companies over and over that they're feeling pressure from their younger workers. The surveys are very clear that, you know, the millennials who are under 40 and, and Gen Z, I have a couple teenagers, the ones that are coming into college and then into the workforce, their views about the role of business and society are different than previous generations. They believe companies should be solving societal problems, not just profiting, and those two should not be at odds. They look for values in their workplace. There's just tons of global surveys that prove this. And I think companies are going to have to create workplaces where people feel like they are fulfilling some purpose. Um, it doesn't mean every job is going to be fascinating, right? There's still grunt work in everything we do, but that's part of what it's going to mean to be a relevant business that thrives is to create positive impact. And that's what people are demanding, and especially the younger ones. You have a new book coming out. It's called Net Positive, and it's coming out October 5th. Incidentally, that's the date that this podcast episode is going to be released. What can people learn from it? Hopefully a lot. I mean, so I co-authored it with Paul Pullman, who ran Unilever for 10 years. It's been really the highest ranked in, in multiple surveys as a, as a sustainable company, especially for you know large companies. Our book is about how do you build a company that serves the world, that improves the lives of all its stakeholders and not just shareholders, that the company thrives, it profits, it serves shareholders, but as a result of the work it does, as a result of solving the world's problems, not creating them. We lay out in, in, you know, in some detail the kind of pathway to this kind of business where you, you start with 
in many ways who you are and your mission and purpose. And it really starts with kind of a personal view of things and then to organizational purpose and, um, and the ambition the, uh, the company has, the kind of goals it sets, and really builds towards a conversation about partnership and how systematic our problems are. Things like climate change are just too big for any, any entity to deal with. And so we we're helping organizations move towards a deeper sense of partnership where they work with civil society and governments in a really productive way to solve our shared problems. And then we also ask people to, to think hard about some of the, the issues that companies really avoid talking about that are contributing to our biggest problems, things like um, not paying taxes in business or executive compensation being out of control, corruption, um, human rights, and these really tough issues that we don't feel you can be a positive influence on the world if you're not addressing those things and contributing in all that you do. Um, so I'm very excited about this. I think it's a very kind of robust, aggressive argument for where business needs to go today to be relevant. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to see how the world you know, reacts to this, this take on what it means to be a business today. What fills you with a sense of optimism related to the fight against climate change? There's two things that kind of keep me going. And it's one is, is very tactical and businessy and one's kind of human. On the business front, just the scale of the clean economy, how fast it's coming, the exponential change. And again, the price, the cost of doing business in a clean way has dropped so much that I have no doubt that the grid will be globally will be basically all renewables at some point, that we will be driving all EVs. It's a matter of how fast, right? And that leads me to kind of the second part, which is for it to go fast enough, we need real human commitment and drive. And I think it's hard not to be optimistic about the pressure building from young people, the Greta Thunbergs of the world, you know, 16, 17 year olds filling the streets and making their voices heard, right? And I think this generation of activism as they're aging into voting age, I think they will be heard. And I think the impact they have on companies as employees, as consumers, and the impact they have on their families, their parents, the people who are still in power, the CEOs of the world, you know, the leaders, their kids are asking them really hard questions. And you're seeing this happen in lots of different ways. The financial world, we didn't talk about this, but the banks are finally kind of coming around to this ESG discussion and how do you think about sustainability and investments? And a lot of the reason is the private wealth in the bank community, the younger members of rich families are asking these questions and pushing for impact investing. That's one of the main drivers of this. So I'm optimistic about what young people can accomplish and how they are able to mobilize in ways that we were just, it was just not possible, right? You can get millions of people through Instagram or, or through Twitter. You can get them in the streets, right? Like it's, it's kind of remarkable. So I'm optimistic about that, but, but it's going to be a fight. Is there anything that I should have asked you that you wanted to talk about? One of the things that's evolved in my thinking about what it means to be a, a sustainable business or a responsible business that I'm writing about and talking about more and more is the role of business in policy and advocacy. And I just say that the days of kind of sitting on the sidelines or saying, oh, that's not our problem or, you know, we stay out of politics are really gone. And you've seen in the last couple of years, companies feeling this pressure and need to speak out on race, LGBTQ rights, you know, religious freedom, you know, abortion bills, just everything. And so I think we're going to see more and more companies realizing that they have this role through their voice, through their political voice and power and their advocacy to help create systemic change in the right direction, not just walk in um, and look for self-interested, you know, lobbying for like a tax break but to go in and try to change the system. And it's what we call net positive advocacy in the book. 
And I think it's a really critical shift in how companies think about their role. Is there a way to measure net positive advocacy? Well, there's a couple of groups like Influence Map. There's a couple of NGOs and organizations that are doing a pretty good job of at least tracking what companies are doing and calling attention to companies that, that are disconnected, at least showing how much they're spending or how much time they're spending through their own lobbying versus their trade associations. Like there is some measurement going on, but it's hard, right? It's a, it's a qualitative thing as much as it is as it is quantitative. Andrew, I'm so glad we were able to reconnect. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And thank you again for being a genius. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to 12 Geniuses. During next week's episode, futurist David Houle will join the show again. In season four, David and I talked about the future of humanity. This time, he and I discuss how climate change is threatening many parts of the U.S. and other countries around the world. David is calling for a strategic retreat away from many coastal areas, geographies threatened by ongoing wildfires, and places that have unsustainable water supplies. David's episode will be released October 12th, 2021. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.